Locate in your Bibles once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to be bringing this morning's message from verses 10 through 17. And this evening's message from verses 18 through to the conclusion of the chapter. This morning I want to address you on the subject, a church of witness. And this evening I want to address you on the subject of a church of weakness. But before we dive in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, we ask now that You would work in us through the preaching of Your Word. We pray that as I preach, I would do so as one who worships You. That the act of preaching would be an act of worship and exaltation. I pray that as I preach, that we would be led to worship as we respond to the preaching of Your Word. That You would lift our eyes to see Jesus Christ. That You would lift our our spirits. That You would encourage us and enhearten us with, with, with power that is not of ourselves, but is indeed of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that You would remind us that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And I pray that it is in that spirit that I would preach this morning. Lord, we pray that You would help us to see how this message and uh, this exposition of this text applies to us individually and congregationally. We pray... Lord, that You would guide us in all things. That You would teach us and train us in all things. In Jesus' name, Amen. How many of you have been a witness in court? It's not a rhetorical question. Anyone? Have you had that experience of taking the stand in court and testifying to something or other. Well, uh, for one reason or the other, I have been a key witness in court on, I believe, five occasions that I've been able to recall. Twice on the side of the prosecution, once on the side of the defendant, and twice on the side of the appealant. Each time, I'm pleased to say, the case went in the favor of those with whom I stood, which is always nice and reassuring because you begin to wonder if you saw things correctly or if you have assessed things accurately. You don't want to be on the side of unrighteousness or injustice in any way. Most recently, it was a a crown court case, and that was just last month. It was on the side of the prosecution in a domestic violence assault case that caused actual bodily harm. I was once asked what it is like to be under that kind of pressure. See, if you you don't know the process, they, uh, they, they, they take you in, or rather they don't, you show up and there's a good chance you'll walk by someone you may see in the courtroom later on the other side. And uh, at least that's the way I do things. They offer me all sorts of other stuff. But I'll just go through the main entrance and I go through the security. 
And uh, this, this last time, the fellow that was accused was there outside. And then I saw him fall into the queue immediately behind me. And then I'm walking to the section for witnesses, and the accused was standing directly behind me waiting on a lift. Uh, not the most comfortable situation to be in. They did then take you into a, another room over to the side, and normally there's no one in that space, but sometimes there'll be a few others quietly whispering amongst themselves related to other cases. And you sit there, and you wait, and there's uh, wonderful volunteers who may come and talk with you and see how you're coping and may bring you a cup of tea or coffee if you ask, but large stretches of time may pass and you are sat there alone to your thoughts. And perhaps your thoughts inevitably go to how you will perform on the witness stand and what you will say and how you will say it, and whether you actually remember things accurately, and whether the person you are defending is indeed innocent, or the person which you are testifying against is indeed guilty. All sorts of thoughts go into your mind, and, and, and you may begin to wonder, even once you are, are quite sure that you're telling the truth, you may begin to wonder if you are doing the right thing. On one occasion, I was to testify against a gang of Albanian drug dealers from my local community, and I have this, this thing where I don't want to be behind a screen. I want to look people in the face, and I want them to see me. Uh, for me, that's a pastoral thing, not only a, a, you know, making a, a statement thing. And uh, I, I, I want to be able, in some context, to perhaps in another time, in another place, to maybe interact with them more as a person, as a pastor, as a face they've seen before who wasn't put off by them. And someone who perhaps, though he stood on the other side, is nonetheless able to be respectable. And I remember going in and standing there and seeing them in front of me and thinking, well, that's, you know, am I doing, am I doing the right thing is this wise? Is this safe? Is this sane, even? It is a burden, especially beforehand. But there is something that I have found, at least, incredibly liberating about taking the stand, and often there will be a, a Bible there. And although you're not required to, I'll take the Bible in my hand because God's Word is truth. And I will, in that place, before the judge, the jury, and the witnesses, declare the complete God-helped truthfulness of what I am about to say. For me, that takes me from zero to 100. And really, I find the truth so compelling in that moment that it would be a greater burden for me not to speak. A greater burden for me not to act. Similarly, when bearing witness to the truth about God, 
And the truth as it is embodied in Jesus Christ who said, I am the truth. I am the truth. Whether, whether preaching to my church or to this church or any church, seizing a moment to share something of the Gospel with a friend or a neighbor, or going out and intentionally sharing the Gospel with strangers, I find the build-up to be daunting. Even deflating. Because I'm already anticipating something that I do not know for sure will be the case. Namely, I will be rejected. Or my message will be, and for me, that's, that's pretty personal. I often have a keen sense of my weakness and weariness. But then, I remember... This is truth. Knowing the truth changes everything. Indeed, it sets the prisoners free. And it sets me free. As a witness, I don't need to defend the truth so much as I need to declare it. You know, when Jesus ascended into heaven, He said to His disciples, you will be My witnesses. And that was a promise. And it is a promise to us even today. We will be Christ's witnesses if we are His followers. Witness involves two primary elements. The visual and the verbal. The visual component testifies to changed lives, personal integrity, credibility, and thereby, most importantly, sincerity. Because if people do not see the sincerity of your faith, why should they even listen to you? The verbal component stands in the sincerity of the visual witness to proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. And He's risen from the dead. And to proclaim that message with the boldness of someone who believes this message is God's power, as our first reading said, to save everyone who believes it. The demonstrable sincerity of the visual and the definite boldness of the verbal combine for truly compelling witness to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. This witness that points to Christ can only flow out of Christ as we know and experience Him. And so with that in mind, from the text, 1 Corinthians 1, 10-17, I want to present before you some vital Christ-centered, witness-shaping truths that I hope will foster sincerity and boldness in your witness as Christian individuals and a local church. First of all, Christ is one. Christ is one. We see that as the positive reframing of the question in verse 13. Paul asks, is Christ divided? The answer he anticipates is no. Christ is not divided. If Christ is not divided, which is a negative statement, what does that mean positively? Christ is one. 
This truth addresses the problem of disunity. Because the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is one. Paul asks, why why are Christ's followers divided? Why are people who profess to be a part of the body of the one Christ so fragmented? That is the situation that presents itself before him A sister has sent some people to give a report to Paul. And they have reported division. It's reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Thus, in verse 10, he he appeals to them, he urges them to agree and that there be no divisions among them. He's not just saying that for the pleasure of it. He is responding to an actual crisis of disunity within the local church. Why are they divided? Why might we be divided? And any number of uh, answers to that question can be given, but I believe most detrimental to our witness is when we lose sight of Jesus Christ, we fixate on all sorts of other things. And those other things divide us. In the text, they were dividing over personalities. But as you read further in 1 Corinthians, it was not just personalities, it was preferences. In fact, if you were to uh, combine the different elements of 1 Corinthians, we might say that they were dividing over personalities due to their personal preferences because those personal preferences seem to be shared and emulated by these people that they were following and gathering around. I believe that most detrimental to our witness is when preferences have been elevated to principal status. Externals have been inappropriately emphasized and even in some circumstances oppressively enforced. The subcultural has been more impactful in shaping our faith and practice than the scriptural. Perhaps we have become like the Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know about you, but I can spot a Jehovah's Witness way down the road before I ever see the Watchtower magazine in their hand. There's, there's something about the clothes. I think I don't know, they, they all shop at the same place or something. Or, um, and and uh, I see some acknowledgement. I'm not saying any lies. Um, uh, there's a way they walk. There's a certain pace. And um, a, a way they carry themselves. I mean, some people might say, well, I don't see the problem with that. That's not all bad. But my concern is when you're recognized more from a distance by your suit than by your Savior. And by the Holy Spirit within you. I don't want to dwell on many potential areas of disunity. Rather, I want to point you toward the one source and expression of true unity that must and I believe will flow through sincere and bold witness. 
Throughout 1 Corinthians, you see this uh, combination of the individual and the congregational. Make no mistake about it, you are an individual. As an individual, and maybe someone needs to hear this today, as an individual, you are special. You are unique. There, there really is no one else exactly like you. And God made you just the way you are. You are made in the image of God. If you are following Jesus, you are remade in the image and likeness of Christ. Not only are you unique at a personal and personality level, you are uniquely gifted to uniquely and practically love God, love your neighbor, and build up the body of Christ. Constant theme through 1 Corinthians. And this is because God's, by God's grace, according to His promptings, you have been changed or are being changed, I certainly hope, from a consumer into a contributor. Not one who simply gathers with the church to, to get, but to give to your brothers and sisters the encouragement and the help that they need. And to go into society and to bless people as a witness of Jesus Christ. But though you're unique, you're not alone. You know, the poet John Donne wrote, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Don't take his word for it. Um, it we can just stick with Scripture even. Consider the biblical imagery. Many unique citizens. One kingdom. Many sons. One family under one father. Many branches. One luxuriant vine. And of course, many members. One body. Paul stresses, he hints at that already in these verses when he says, be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. But later, he stresses this point of how the many ought to be one and how the one is manifested in many. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. In one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Jews or Greeks, a, 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 you know, not only a creedal description, but an ethnic description, a cultural description. Slaves or free. A class description. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever you do, whatever you have or don't have, you are called into one body in Jesus Christ. Later in that same chapter, Paul says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ 
and individually members of it. So, if someone is down, you help lift them up. If, if, if someone is up, you don't have to tear them down. Rather, you rejoice with them. And all are brought together in unity and in service and in worship. Our world is full of divisions and barriers. And never mind our world, our churches. From culture to culture, people have been and are treated poorly, often by the majority culture on the basis of such things as color, class, and present or former even creed. It's, it's as though because a man is black or a woman is poor or a child comes from a Muslim family that that gives people license to abusively treat them contemptuously and carelessly. Others, possibly meaning well, quite unhelpfully go to the other extreme. Maybe you've heard this before. Someone says, um, I, I don't, to, the per, to the person who has suffered for their color, they say, oh, I don't see color. But that man does and is regularly reminded of it by the way he's treated. Or, I, I don't care about class. But there's a woman who can't afford not to care about it. Because she is poor, and whatever she does, she can't seem to climb higher. I don't worship your God! But that child from a Muslim family is never warmly and winsomely told about the God that is worthy of worship and praise. Into such confusion, we ought to be able to say, I see you're different. I, I'm different too. We may not have some things in common, but one thing we do have in common, we are sinners. We are divided from right relationship with God. And we are in need of someone to save us from our sins and the eternal consequences that we deserve. That someone is Jesus who gave His life to free us from sin and its eternal consequences. To take those who were far and to bring them near. Creating in Himself a new humanity for those most extraordinarily different people can be united by so great a salvation transcending everything else that the world puts in our way. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Bear in mind those great words which have, have been quoted and quoted and memorized to the point that people have lost their significance are framed by illustrations of that glorious truth. 
Jesus is talking to a self-righteous ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, a man in the city of Jerusalem. The next passage, he leaves the city and he goes to the rural countryside and he proclaims the good news of the kingdom there and makes disciples there. Uh, not After that, he's engaged in lengthy discourse with not a self-righteous Jewish Pharisee man, but a sinful, broken, Samaritan woman who is not treated as a Jew by Jews, but isn't really a Gentile in the eyes of Gentiles, but finds herself somewhere in between and has a reputation in her own people, among her own people, for sin. And Jesus talks with her. And she comes to her Village, and she says, come and meet a man who told me all that I ever did. And they go out to him, and they spend time with him, and they say, surely this is the Savior of the world. And then after that, he goes, he goes to the, the village of Nahum, um, uh, who incidentally, it's named after, he's not actually from there, but it's named after the prophet Nahum, who was a prophet to the Gentiles, Capernaum. And, and, and that's in a region called Galilee of the Gentiles. And there he has an encounter with a Gentile official. Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. God so loved the world. And so in a world of division, we ought to be unique and distinct as a church and declare that, that we are the world that God loved by giving His only Son. Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, restoring us to right relationship with God and bringing people from all kinds of backgrounds together in the love of His family, whatever divisions might have once existed between us. And whatever differences may continue to characterize the existential realities of your day to day. So, not everyone should look just like you in church. Not everyone should dress just like you in church. Not everyone should sound just like you in church. Not everyone should have the identical opinions that you have or the identical personal preferences that you have in church. Jesus calls us not to uniformity, but to unity. Do we have, do we have these issues? If you hate your brother or hurt your sister or give approval to those who do or ignore it or deny it when it happens, you're not characterized by saving witness, but by sinful weakness. Our unity out of diversity makes us intrinsically a witness to the world. It propels us all the more to be a witnessing community and it compels those who see and hear our witness to the transcendent unifier Jesus Christ to respond. Christ is one. And so, check, check yourself. I, I, I use, I use an, an analogy of, of the sort of majority culture and minority cultures and how all of those dynamics play. But in a minority-majority church like this, are we exempt from these type problems? Can we not have a divide between first generation immigrants and second and third generation? Those who were born and 
raised here and those who came from somewhere else? Can we not have a divide between the old and the young? Can we not have a divide between West Africans and West Indians? And different people say demeaning things about people from a different country. Even if perhaps color is not the same thing that maybe it would have been previously. What about someone's class and maybe the way, the way that impacts how they speak or how they dress or what type of education they've had or what sort of job they pursue or their approach to getting a job? What type of snipey things get said that actually divide the body of Christ? Maybe some of you really love the old hymns. Obviously, I do for anyone who loves them and is defensive of them. I love them. The song selection were all old hymns. But are, 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 are you frustrated unduly by people who like newer hymns that may actually be more rich theologically and more singable practically, but you just don't like them because they're newer and you don't know them? There's, there's a whole list of things that we could talk about. Friends, Jesus Christ is one. And He brings us into the oneness of His family. But not only do we see that Christ is one, we see that Christ alone was crucified for you. Was, was Paul crucified for you, he asks. Still in verse 13. Was Paul crucified for you? And of course the answer is no. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. This truth addresses the problem of our idolatry. Because no one else is entitled to our allegiance nor worthy of our worshipful attentions. The church at Corinth was dividing not only around uh, the boundaries of culture and class and former creed, personal preferences, the church at Corinth was also dividing over preferred teachers. Paul, who planted the church. Apollos, who's described later as watering the church. Peter, he's here called Cephas. Uh, it's the Greek form of his Hebrew name. He seems to have visited along with his wife at a later date. He was just passing through. They claim to be followers of these men. But you know, I think this really seems unlikely. They say, I follow Paul. They say, I follow Apollos. They say, I follow Cephas. But if they really were close followers of these men, then they would be led by these men to Christ. Perhaps they're more accurately described not as followers, but as fans. Their gushing enthusiasm for the one they follow is outdone only by the self-righteousness, arrogance, and pride that seems to have accompanied it, whereby they appear utterly incapable of listening to or respecting anyone else. A culture that, that continued even beyond this first letter to the Corinthians into the second letter, where people were speaking dismissively of the Apostle Paul because he... He wasn't really a super apostle. He was just an apostle. A 
unfortunately, all sorts of philosophical isms, ists, and ians get built around people. And I dare say, some of the time, the person people are rallying around or building their theology and life on is actually not appreciative of the over-the-top attention. Because if people were listening to them, they would be pointed to Christ. Some, however, do feed off of it. I've seen it. And I fear that their, their behavior fuels it. Theological, spiritual narcissists who thrive on the undue attention of adoring fans. If only more joined John Wesley. John Wesley is not, not someone I would incidentally agree with on many theological things. But I love his attitude and demeanor, at least from the grave. If you go to where he's buried at Old Street, you will see the inscription hundreds of years old. It still speaks to us today. Reader, if you are constrained to bless the instrument, give God the glory. He's basically saying he's just, he's just a little violin in the hands of a sovereign God. Playing a piece, not even playing a piece, being played as a composition composed by the author of all things. Give God the glory. If you look at me and you think I'm something, stop. Worship God. Of course, there are other extremes and there are those who piously in the text put themselves as above it all and they say, we follow Christ. Be careful because I, the, you might say, oh, that seems like a good thing. And indeed it is, but the context indicates against seeing these people as genuinely concerned with following Christ. There's an inability to respect or follow anything else of good for their faith and practice. Perhaps an inability to submit to the teaching of the apostles. They're an ancient version of, I suppose, of what some have called red-letter Christians. Are you familiar with the term? Maybe that's just an American thing. Where we have these, these Bibles printed in red letters, uh, the words of Jesus in red. I'm not dissing red-letter Bibles. If you have one, I've not seen it. I'm not calling you out. I'm not judging you this morning. Perhaps they provide some help as a study aid. But there are some who identify as red-letter Christians. That is, they say, um, I, I just sit with the words of Jesus. Uh, that's good enough for me. Never mind that Jesus relies you know, very heavily on the, the law and the prophets and his teaching and he authorizes the apostles for their witness. And so Old and New Testaments are all, also because the Scripture is breathed out by God, and Jesus is the Word made flesh. I, I, I mean, we're, we're getting into territory where we're saying this is not the words of Jesus, but it is, the whole thing. Okay, someone says, ah, you've got me on that one. I'm a Sermon on the Mount Christian. I just struggle with the... the uh, judgmentalism of everything else and you know it just it's not it's not my bag I'm not really into that 
You, you do realize Jesus said more about hell in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Than pretty much anywhere else. Certainly more than he says about heaven in that one sermon. I mean, it's very justice-oriented. Oh, and then you get, you, you, you get people who won't listen to, submissively to a sermon from the Apostle Paul because they're like, oh, you know, Paul's all right. I disagree with him on that, though. I, I prefer Jesus. That's the type of attitude that, that Paul is calling out already in the early church in this text. Do we have any problems like this in our own hearts? In our own midst today? I don't know. You will have to speak for yourself. I do think that we live in a landscape, a spiritual landscape, which is rife with the damage of celebrity. I'm laboring to be charitable. But I think that the line is easily crossed from being a devotee to being an insufferable fanboy. We are called not, brothers and sisters, to wide-eyed sycophancy around the preacher, but sober-minded submission to the preaching. Is your adoration for the messenger or for how the messenger ushers you quickly to the message and introduces you at its heart to Christ? Because if it's not, if it's around the messenger, eventually the messenger will disappoint you. Or maybe the messenger disappoints many, but it's impossible for him to disappoint you because, oh, surely he couldn't have said that. Surely he didn't do that. And you follow someone who's not to be trusted, not to be followed on everything as though they were Jesus himself. Be careful, friends. What is to be done? None of the men and women you watch, listen to, read, or somehow follow was crucified for you. So stop acting like it. They're not sinlessly perfect. Their motives and their messages can be tainted by the imperfections of fallen sinful humanity. They, here's the reality. You may have gotten a selfie with them sometime, but they don't know you enough to care about you. And so something that's really poisonous that I see in churches is where the pastor loves the, the, the church, shepherds the flock, and is seeking to patiently, pastorally work with and counsel you, but because this guy over here on YouTube said something, or you read in a book once, you feel at liberty to dispense with the contextual, pastoral, insightful counsel of your pastors. That's not good. Your attitude, I'm not being disrespectful to these men. Your attitude should be, I could care less what Vody has to say. I'm more concerned with what Pastor Kehinde has to say. Because he actually knows me personally well. Your attitude should be less, you know, that... that, that um, Charlie Dates really packed a, a punch in that message. And um, I, I think that 100% he can do, you know, say, say no wrong in that. He's 100% right. And more, what, what have your pastors, your elders, your deacons, 
worked through pastorally and practically with you at your level, knowing you. If in our own lives as Christians we can't seem to get this straight, how can we keep our witness not only sincere and bold, but simple? Jesus does not rate any idolatry, but before you go as a witness to the only Savior of sinners, to the idol-worshiping masses around you, make sure you've identified and appropriately dealt with your own. Examine yourself. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Get up and bear witness to Him. Oh, there's, there's so much in this text, but I, I must move swiftly on. Um, Christ is the name in which you were baptized. So, so we've seen that, that Christ is one. We've seen that Christ alone was crucified for you. We also see that Christ is the name in which you were baptized. This truth addresses our disunity, like the first truth. It also addresses our idolatry, like the second truth, but it goes a step further and addresses our immorality. Because being baptized under the authority of Jesus Christ into His family displays our union with Christ and His people. It also demonstrates our obedience to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and our allegiance with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is an appeal to God and a proclamation to the congregation of our spiritual cleansing and our resurrection to walk in newness of life. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've not been baptized, you should be. Baptism itself is a public witness. And some people get the wrong idea about baptism from this text. I'm going to read it and you'll see why. Perhaps you'll already have leapt to that conclusion. Paul asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. And then he remembers two guys he did baptize. Okay, those guys, I baptized them. So, so they may say they were baptized in my name. Uh, doesn't matter if very few of you baptized. There was a whole household over here I totally forgot about. The household of Stephanus. You know what, I might as well just add a little qualifier. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. He's just happy that no one was baptized in his name. And no one, or very few, can walk away saying, ah, oh, we were baptized in the name of Paul. Why? For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, some people will quote this and will disregard the importance of the beautiful thing that baptism is. And I can understand why at first glance. But that's not, Paul is not saying baptism is unimportant. It wasn't. Was Paul baptized? The Apostle Paul was baptized. Did he baptize people? Absolutely. He even, although at first he says he didn't baptize anyone, he remembers a list of people that he baptized. 
Paul could not envision any such thing as an unbaptized member of the church. That's not something, however common it may be in our day, it's not something we really read in the New Testament. Paul writes about baptism. You can fact check me on that. Romans 6, Colossians 2, Galatians 3 are some examples. He's not saying that baptism is unimportant, but rather he is saying that baptism is so important and the message it conveys is so vital that for the most part he refuses to baptize people lest the baptizer distract from the message of the baptism. Plenty of people were baptized in Corinth. In fact, everyone who would have been a member of the church at Corinth, so far as we can tell, was baptized. Acts tells us just that. That they believed and were baptized. But Paul was personally not responsible in the ceremony itself, for the most part. With a few exceptions. His point is that the symbol has real substance but that that substance is not found in Him, nor in anyone else who's officiating the baptism, but the substance is found in Jesus Christ, not the person doing the baptizing. I hope we're making that clear. It might seem like, okay, that's I'm not so sure what he's saying there. You can talk with me afterwards. Okay, we'll, we'll work through that. But the point he's saying is that It's not in any man's name that you're baptized. When you are baptized, you're not appealing to to the baptizer for a pure conscience. When you're baptized, you're not portraying that person's death, burial, and resurrection. When you're baptized, you're not brought into spiritual union with that person. Christ is everything. It all is around Jesus. Okay, so... As we, we, we've laid those, those foundational points into place, I must conclude by saying that Christ sends messengers to preach the powerful good news of His cross. Christ is one. Christ alone was crucified for you. Christ is the name you were baptized in. Christ sends you, yes, you, as His messengers to preach the powerful good news of His cross. Paul begins this letter as he does the second canonical letter to the Corinthians by rooting his apostleship in the will of God. He's an apostle through and by the will of God. He often describes himself as a servant. Still elsewhere in Galatians, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's an attitude of those with the New Testament office of apostles And honestly, the same humble attitude has been held by any others that history looks back on and says God used them as apostles. I'm not not saying that these are people who went around with special clothes and adverts with their picture on it, apostle, so-and-so. That that wasn't their style. Very much the opposite. Read Christian history, though. Read Reformed Christian history. And there are people that were called lowercase a apostles. They exercised an evangelistic church planting ministry uh, in pioneering context where the gospel had not previously been proclaimed. And every one of them humbled themselves 
They were sinners. Paul was a sinner. All the apostles were sinners. They weren't without flaws. But they humbled themselves to Jesus because Jesus says, go. Jesus says, as you are going, make disciples. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Messengers, servants, under the authority of Jesus, called by God, sent with a message from God, and they must communicate that message with faith in its sufficiency and faithfully in its simplicity. The world may consider you foolish, and we'll talk about that tonight, but your purpose should not be to communicate with worldly standards of eloquent wisdom, philosophizing and theorizing, but the cross, the message of a man hung up like a piece of meat on a torture instrument to bleed out and suffocate his life away for you and me, for our sins, once and for all, so that we, by believing in him, might have life in his name, reconciliation to God and to each other, and walk in newness of life. It's a simple message, scandalously simple, and quite brutal. But it ends not with a cross, but with a crown. The resurrection of Jesus, now ascended into heaven, reigning forever and ever. We live as Yes, people of the cross. We take up our cross and we follow Jesus. And we do that every time we bear witness because if you're anything like me, you're anxious, you're nervous, you're discouraged, you're deflated, you're like me in the waiting room, waiting to go on the stand in the court, and you're wondering, you know, how's this going to work out? What am I going to say? How should I say it? Maybe this technique won't work, this approach, this, these work. And you're just wondering. Sometimes in that room, you have to remind yourself who you are, what you know, what you believe, what you saw. You have to talk to yourself, and sometimes you need to talk to yourself and say, I, I, I am a person of Jesus Christ. I'm a person of the cross of Christ. And I am a part of a congregation of people of a risen King. So I don't stand in my power, but in His. Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's power in the cross. There doesn't have to be power in you. In fact, in your weakness, you can most effectively point to that cross. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind but now I see. I'm still weak, but God is my strength. I still have things of which I can and perhaps should be afraid, but I will take courage, for I have a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. There's a man named James Gilmore. It's not someone that I often run across people who know him, but James Gilmore was one of those that history has looked back on and said they were an apostle. 
He was the, he, he was the apostle to Mongolia. From 1870 to 1891, he was active in missionary service, leaving these British Isles to travel Mongolia more than any European before his time, sharing the gospel. He ate, slept, and traveled as a low-class Mongolian because he wanted to be with the people that he was reaching. Later, he married a very brave woman named Emily, um, brave at so many levels, quite apart from his occupation and his geographical location, they had actually never met each other. Um, they knew about each other, but they'd never met each other. And then they get married, and she joins him in his hard life. Sadly, she died only 11 years later. They did have three children together. Sadly, one of those also died. The hardship this man endured, whether bereavement of those closest to him, harsh weather, almost drowning in flash floods on the Mongolian plains, the total lack of response to the gospel for years and years and years as he traveled and taught and preached the gospel, people didn't respond. They were far less likely to respond positively to the gospel than your friends than your co-workers, than your neighbors. For years he labored with no response. And then he would slide into serious depression. Severe bouts of it. But he wrote that all of this was merely out of obedience to the great commission of Jesus. He said, I go out as a missionary, not that I may follow the dictates of common sense, but that I may obey the command of Christ. Will we obey the command of Christ? Vibrant unity. Biblical, Christ-centered worship. God-focused ordinances. Righteous missional lives. Your wholeness and your holiness. Your worship and your witness is all from Christ. Because He's the originator of our faith. And it's all for Christ. Because He is the object of our faith. It's all because of Christ. Because He saves us by His power. And it's all about Christ because His salvation is worth proclaiming. If you want to grow in sincerity and boldness in your witness, look to Christ. Consider Christ. The whole and one Christ. The all-sufficient sacrificing Christ. The name by which you are forever marked Christ. And plead with Him to fill you by His Holy Spirit of power, love, and self-control. He will do it. Then you can stand. You can stand in His faithfulness and by His power for His glory and His fame. And when the world sits in judgment around you and asks if you're telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you can say, I do. So help me, God. Amen. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that in Your mercy and in Your grace, You would help us to be faithful witnesses to no one and nothing else but Christ. Not witnesses to our culture, but to Christ. Not witnesses to our preferences, but to Christ. 
not witnesses to our favorite preachers, but witnesses to Jesus Christ and His majesty and His glory. Father, may this body not be characterized by divisions in any way, shape, form, or fashion, but by Christ and His likeness. May everything that is said and done here proclaim and portray Jesus. Help us, Lord God. In Jesus' name, Amen.